Today's sermon text is found in the Psalms, uh, chapter 126, the entire Psalm 126. Cuando el Señor hizo volver a los cautivos de Sion, éramos como los que sueñan. Entonces nuestra boca se llenó de risa y nuestra lengua de gritos de alegría. Entonces dijeron entre las naciones, grandes cosas ha hecho el Señor con ellos. Grandes cosas ha hecho el Señor con nosotros. Estamos alegres. Haz volver, Señor, a nuestros cautivos como las corrientes en el sur. Los que siembran con lágrimas segarán con gritos de júbilo. El que con lágrimas anda, llevando la semilla de la siembra, en verdad volverá con gritos de alegría, trayendo sus gavillas. When the Lord rest restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Church, I love it that we're passionate. We're passionate about a lot of things, and we are passionate about the gospel. We are passionate that the scriptures are alive. We are passionate that we are under their authority. And we're passionate about gathering each week to sit under the teaching of God's word. Over the course of this summer, we're going to be going through various psalms. And over the course of that summer, we'll have brothers from within our church who will preach. And we will have brothers who go to other churches, who lead other churches that will come and join us. Like this morning, we get a chance to worship and sit under the teaching of Pastor Dan. Pastor Dan planted a church um, up in Baltimore. And, and just listen to this, guys, the dream of his church. And let's just be praying while our brother's preaching. With dreams of making God famous through a diverse and multiple, multicultural expression of the kingdom of God. And then I love it in his bio, you all. He doesn't leave out his wife because every great man knows that a greater woman is standing right behind him. And he says this, after God, his greatest joy and desire in life is for his lovely wife, Judy, and their two daughters. So please join me now in welcoming Pastor Dan to the stage, and we're going to pray over him. Come on, brother. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God that wants to be known. Thank you that you have screamed at us through your creation, that we look at your creation and we cannot think that there is a maker, that there is a grand designer. But Lord, you didn't even just stop there. Lord, you have given us your scriptures so that we may know you, so that we may draw close to you by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, work powerfully today as my brother preaches forth your scriptures, Lord, that he would have a blast knowing that he's preaching to his family, his family who loves him and wants to encourage him and support him. But most importantly, Father, our ears are open, our minds are ready, our affections are ready to be stirred, and our hands are ready to be enabled. We want to be hearers and doers of your scripture. Move now in power, Father. Thank you that your word is alive and sharper than any double-edged sword. We are excited to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
All right, Sojourn Church. Um, I am honored whenever I get the chance to speak in any church, especially one that's uh, doing amazing things like you are all doing. Um, but particularly, and I'm not sure if every one of you are aware of this, but we are actually, there's familial bonds here beyond just being children of God. We are part of this network called Sojourn Network. And uh, so you're Sojourn Church, but you're also part of this network called Sojourn Network. So um, honestly, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be here with y'all. It's, it's close enough to be here and very honored. Uh, so uh, just send greetings from the network and, and that we're one big family all around this nation together. And it's a blessing to be able to worship this morning. I also um, I'm glad to be able to preach here because I know your pastor, uh, Pastor Justin, and his family have just started sabbatical. Um, and that's a great. Yeah. Be praying for them. Um, and if I'm going to guess, and, I, and, you know, we're all different, so everyone processes things differently, but I'm going to guess there's actually a little bit, I know there's excitement on Pastor Justin's part, but there's probably a little bit of, like, nervous excitement here in the church as well because um, it's new, and we like new, right? And we like different. And I, I almost equate it to if you have kids, um, when you get a babysitter, I mean, kids, sometimes, like, it, it, it disturbs your self-worth because your kids are so happy to have these other people come to your house and so fun. It's like, wow, we get a babysitter? Go, go. And, and it's exciting and fun. But here's the thing. If you're gone long enough, if it's like a weekend or maybe even into a week, at, at, at the beginning, what was fun and exciting because it's new, by the end, it's like calling you, Mom, Dad, when are you coming home? We miss you so much. We didn't realize how good we got it. And that, that's kind of what some of my hope in that <laughs> As you proceed through this sabbatical time, you're going to realize how blessed you are to have a pastor like Pastor Justin and his family to shepherd, to lead, sacrifice, and serve you. And that by the end of this whole sabbatical, no matter how good the preaching is, you're going to be like, wow, we really want Pastor Justin back. Um, so I'm, I'm just selfish, so I'm glad to be on the front end, front end of this, where it's still fresh in you, and I'm cool babysitter, and by the end, all those other guys are going to be like, oh, I'm not even hearing because I want my pastor back. But it is good to be together, particularly as you go through this journey through the Psalms this summer. And I'm just going to jump right in. We're looking at Psalm 126. And this is a, a, one of a group of a 15 Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascents. And, and what it meant was these are Psalms that as you ascend toward Jerusalem for celebration, as you are going to uh, different festivals, you're going to proclaim and praise. So think of these as like your um, road trip party list. Like, these are the songs that you're going to be having to celebrate God, praising him together as you're on your way to rejoice. So it makes sense, then, that there's a hopeful tone. There's a celebratory tone in Psalm 126. It fits in right with the same category. There's a celebratory nature here. And, and in this psalm in particular, I would say the big theme is restoration. That where is joy coming from? It's this idea of being restored. And I think for us to fully grasp what, what we're seeing here in these powerful words, it's helpful to understand a little bit of the context in which they're written. So in your Bible, you'll see historical descriptions of a time when the people of Israel, and, and it, was, it was a dark time in the history where they were taken into captivity. And it dates back to the year 597 B.C. when um, these powerful warriors and skilled craftsmen were basically taken away. And, and they were taken away by the conquering nation of Babylon, one of the strongest nations at the time. Like the best of the best were taken away in captivity. And then what you find 11 years later in the year 586, the Babylonians, they laid waste 
to Israel's main city, Jerusalem. And they broke down the walls. They burned up the city. And, and what they did, they also took the remaining people, the remaining best of the best out of Israel captive as well. And it's important for us to recognize that um, this captivity, this destruction, this was not just a random occurrence. It wasn't just because Babylon was that much more powerful, which they were, but this was also um, used by God as cleansing, as cleansing judgment on his people who had heard his word to obey, to submit themselves under, but yet they continued to rebel, continued to repel. God continued to give grace. He just keeps giving mercy, and they continued to rebel to the point where they had to be humiliated and taken captive, not because God hated them, but because he loved them. He allowed this to be a season. So they really had no earthly hope for deliverance, and then by the time of a third major deportation in the year 581 B.C., the land of Judah, it was left almost fully barren. There was not much signs of life left except the poorest of the people who had been left there. And, and there came a point in their captivity, it had gone on so long, there were very few people that could actually remember a time when they were not captive, who had, when they had not seen their homeland. So in the midst of that captivity, so picture that. It's dark. It's desolate. It's a bad time for the people. And even more powerful people, the Persian Empire, they came in. They conquered the Babylonians. And if you follow history, you would think that would make it even worse, right? But what happened was the king of Persia, King Cyrus, he issued a law. This is just crazy. Releasing the Jews from their captivity. And he freed them to return to Jerusalem. And, and particularly to rebuild the temple. God was using this foreign king. And he even supplied them with the means to do so. With gold, silver, goods, animals. So they could rebuild the temple. So they could rebuild their city again. And, and here's the thing we got to recognize here as we're, as we're listening to these words. This release from captivity, this happened in an instant. This was totally unexpected. There were no peace accords happening. There was no, like, discussions of nations coming together and create a treaty. People were not praying for this. This was uh, totally unexpected. Their fortunes changed literally overnight from captivity to glory. And, and so setting some of that backdrop, it's not stated explicitly, but a lot of scholars, they believe that this Psalm 126 this was written to celebrate that glorious reversal of fortune. To celebrate the ways that God has worked to restore his people when all seem to be lost, when all seem to be dark, and to place that same hope in that same God for today. So let's just break this down little by little as we see what God is speaking to us even here in our modern times. Verse 1, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream." And I have some funky dreams. I don't know about y'all. But depending on what I ate the night before, it often dictates the kind of dreams I have. And have you ever had those kind of dreams? Like you wake up, but you're not sure you woke up because it just felt so real. And you're like, did that really happen? Because I just made like a million-dollar lottery win. Did that happen or did I dream that? It's so real that you're not sure what's reality or not. That's what they're talking about. What happened in their lives, this, this joy, it, it's like a dream because they're not sure if it's real or not because it's so good. And it's so different. And we describe, it's described further how they responded. Verse 2, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And this is just like um, uh, uh, 
totally out of the blue, joyful experience. It's, um, I love scripted drama as much as anyone. You know, I love my Netflix and people writing amazingly compelling stories. But there's just something about sports that you can't script. If you're, a sports, if you're not a sports fan, you can tune out and you're like, oh, sports illustration. Um, there's something about sports that, that you can't know what's going to happen. And sometimes you do, and, and that's when it gets boring. But sometimes stuff happens that you're, you have no um, conception of. And I love, and just Google things, right? Google, like, last-minute win or find your team. And, um, like, I'm thinking about uh, the most recent Olympics in 2016, Summer Olympics, uh, Simone Manuel, when she, when she won the swimming race. And uh, go Google it sometime. Don't do it now because you're in worship, right? But um, it's amazing because no one expected her to win. And, and you see that she's, she's behind, as you would expect, and, and the favorite is about to win. But then in that last turn, something happens, and boom, she just kicks it in. And, and the announcer, it's going, and this person's in the lead. And, 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 and you see their voice go, but look at what's about it. It just goes crazy in an instant because it's something totally unexpected. You didn't think that would happen. It just catches you off guard. And just the joy and celebration, that's what it's talking about here. Spontaneous, uncontainable joy when the unexpected happens. And verse 2, it, it reads again, conclude. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Man, this is like one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I love this because what it reminds me, is that it gives us a glimpse into what this faith is supposed to look like. Because a lot of times, especially 2018 America, we're told to keep your politics to yourself. Um, I would say now keep your food choice to yourself. If you're vegan, don't. What? But also keep your religion to yourself, right? Yo, this is meant to be a privatized thing. But what this reminds us here is that our redemption, our story of knowing the Christ in our lives, it was never intended to be a private matter. It was never meant to be kept to ourselves. That when our lives are transformed, there's no choice but those who are around us would see something's different. That if our lives go from the pits of darkness and suddenly we've experienced the hope of heaven, those around us should know something's different. It shouldn't just be, oh, you want a new diet? Oh, you went shopping, right? There should be, there's something different about you. And that's what it says here, right? Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Everyone around Israel knows something's gone on, and they praise Israel's God. Because our redemption was never intended to be a private matter. Our transformed lives are meant to show the world so that the world would know. And then we worship in response and give God more glory. I love that. So the nations say, the Lord has done great things for them. What does the church do? We respond, the Lord has done, yeah, you got it right. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Mission leads to worship. Missional lives always circulates back into worship. A missional life fuels our own understanding and worship of God and leads to celebration. Then we go into verse 4, and it's interesting if you track it. Let me read it again. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. If you're following along, it almost seems verses 1 to 3 are like a separate psalm from what comes after in Psalm 4. 
I mean, verse 1 to 3 seems to make a lot of sense. You know, people are worshiping God. They're rejoicing this God who brings something out of nothing. He's delivered them from captivity, so there's just spontaneous laughter, like a dream, full of exuberance. And, and they have cause to celebrate. I mean, it's, it's normal. Something good has happened. Of course we celebrate God. They're going to raise their voices in celebration as a response to God's goodness. And, and just a little side note, but that's so much of Western Christianity, right? That so much of the Western faith is one that's based on the blessings God gives. And I'm all about God's blessings. I'm not those weird people that say, punish me more, Lord, so I might not. No, I'm like, Lord, bless me. Please give even more. But, but I think um, we have to be careful that we just don't praise God just when we have our plenty. Or just when we have cause or justifiable reason to praise God. I mean, that's kind of like a God has a wonderful plan for your life type of religion. Like, it's just about the good things happening. And then, of course, we gather like this to praise God because everything's good. God has been so good to us. But in verse 4, you realize that the psalm is actually not being written when things are going well. But it's actually being written in times of lacking. That's why it says restore our fortunes because they don't have it. They're asking God, out of what they are lacking, God, would you show yourself? And, and maybe the agrarian language here, the farming language, means that it's talking to actual farmers who are uncertain of that year's harvest and who are appealing to God. And I don't think that's out of bounds here. I think that's reasonable. But I believe in a general sense, this is also spo- speaking to a people who are, are almost like in a communal sense of lament. Like a, a people who are almost living in this kind of dark time when they're not sure if God's presence is real. They're not sure because the evidence is not there. But yet, they cry out to God in the midst of it. Verses 5 and 6, it describes that this season is full of tears and weeping. This is not an easy season that people are going through. There's, There's really heartfelt praise, but in the very same song, there can be lament. And I, I think that's profound because I, 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 I'm kind of get the feeling already just from being with you guys sojourn here for a few minutes. But I kind of get the feeling you like to keep it kind of real here, which is good, which is good. Because uh, I think sometimes there's this weird thing in church where we feel like we've got to make everyone happy and like kind of be a church. And you kind of turn that frown upside down. If God is for you, why do you have any reason to be unhappy here? Come on, unsmiley, be smiley. That's what God likes. And it's just weird, right? Because you're living life, and you're like, life stinks. This has been really hard. My family stinks. I'm not, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in church. My family stinks. My job stinks. My neighborhood stinks. My health stinks. Everything stinks. But that's why I come to worship God, because he doesn't stink. He's glorious, even when the rest of my life is pretty miserable right now. And I think we need a healthy sense of the both. Like, even as there might be nothing in our worlds that give us evidence to praise God, people around you think you're a lunatic. They think you're a moron. They're like, how the heck can you keep giving praise and worship and service and time and money to this God when nothing's going right? It's because you know, I know who he is. I know who he is. Because in the midst of that, the psalmist here, he asked for God to show himself like the streams of the Negev in verse 4. And, and what this is referring to is the south of Israel, 
which is an utterly dry region during the summertime. But what happens is when it rains in the springtime, the streams quickly fill and flood in like a moment. And I know you're in Northern Virginia, but it's not too far. But if a couple of years ago, you might remember there was the flash flooding in Ellicott City, Maryland. And it was real for us because we had some good church partners who are based right in Ellicott City, not too far from here. And Main Street, Ellicott City is like a cool, hip place to go eat, hang out on a Friday night. And what I remember from that night is the one image of, like, the whole Main Street in Ellicott City being flooded to the point where cars are being um, flooded away, moved away. And people like doing that whole rescue chain thing to help people pull them out of the water. You know why? These people are not idiots. They're not like, yeah, we could have some major flooding, but let's still go get a good dinner tonight. Come on. Let's live life on the wild side. No, I mean, that's not. They had no idea this was coming. But all of a sudden, when the rains came in that hard, heavy way, it flooded like that. And, And that's more of a frightening image. But the image that we have here, it's similar in scope. But it's supposed to actually bring the mind in this context of hope that in a place where they are all all they're used to is parched land. All they're used to is dry. Till your throat can't breathe kind of dry and lack of life and lack of water that all of a sudden in, in an instant God would bring life. God would bring like the streams and the floods. Why do the people have this kind of hope? Because they know their history. And they know their God. They know their history and they know their God. Because the prayer that they're praying here, this is an extremely theologically and biblically based prayer. I love this prayer that they pray here. Because their belief in the God that they describe in verses 1 to 3, that is what leads to the hope and faith that they have following. The things that they're proclaiming about God in verses 1 to 3, that is what is now guiding their prayer, even when their circumstances don't seem to dictate it. And this is why I encourage our people in our church, hey, guys, when we pray, let's first look into scriptures and let the Bible lead us to pray. Let's pray through the character of God. Let's pray through who we know God to be and how he's revealed himself. But, guys, also look at your life. Look at how God's worked in your life, even in the past. And it might feel like it was a long time ago. But remember those moments. And God us memory for a powerful reason. Remember through the scriptures, but also in your own life, who is the God that you've seen? Who is the God that you've seen faithfully at work? And we see that for the people here, their hope in prayer, it leads them to hope in active obedience as well. That even as their hearts are filled with sorrow, even as their tears are leaking, or their eyes are leaking tears, yet they're still going to go out. They're still going to sow in faith. And they're going to have this expectancy that God is going to do something with that precious seed that they're sowing even if their obedience looks like it's an absolute waste. This is some, this is some deep stuff here, guys. I mean, I, I think if we're listening to this, if we're reading this carefully, I don't think we can gl- glance across it too quickly, but I think it has to lead to questions like, maybe some of you struggle with this. I know I do. But questions like, man, why do I even bother? Man, my leaders have told me I just keep being faithful and keep doing this and keep that, and then God will show himself. I, I don't see it happening. Why, why do I even keep bothering? Does it even make a difference? Why am I wasting my time and my energy on something that no one else seems to care about? 
I mean, has all this time that I've invested in this person actually led to any kind of change in their life? Or maybe for some of us, it, it's, it's more certain values that you're committed to. Even when um, those who don't seem to hold those same values, their lives seem to be actually doing better than you. Like maybe people have said, maybe you've committed, I'm going to have integrity in how I proceed in my uh, professional life. Uh, you know, I'm not going to speak ill about people. I'm going to honor in my money. I'm going to be sacrificial, generous. I'm going to, and you find the people around you who are not doing that. They're actually seem to be thriving. They seem to be doing well. And you're like, man, am I like the, am I the dummy here? <laughs> all the faithfulness I'm doing, all the sacrifice, even coming to church every week and going to group, man, I don't see what it's always leading to. And I would suggest if you struggle with that, that's a normal thing. Because I, I think in a high speed, you know, Amazon drone, same day, same hour. It's getting a little scary, right? Like same hour kind of delivery kind of culture. Maybe the most countercultural thing that we can do is live with this principle of sowing in tears for a harvest that we can't yet see with our eyes, but that we believe is coming. Maybe the most countercultural thing we can do in a results now kind of culture is to say, I'm going to continue to be faithful. I'm going to continue to be obedient. I'm going to continue to pour the seed, even if it looks like it's going right down the drain. Because I do believe, and I can't see it right now with my eyes, but I do believe God is doing something with it. And I think this is sometimes hard for us, particularly uh, in America to grasp, and it's helpful to learn from outside of our own culture and our own understanding. And I wanted to share this story, and some of you might have heard this before. If you have, don't sleep for the next few minutes. You can be blessed again. But um, hear the story of another part of the world. And the writer says, I was always perplexed by this scripture until I went to the Sahel, that vast stretch of savanna, more than 4,000 miles wide, just under the Sahara Desert with a climate much like the Bible lands. In the Sahel, all the moisture comes in for a four-month period, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. The ground cracks from dryness, and so do your hands and feet. The winds off the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet into the air. It then comes slowly, drifting across West Africa as a fine grit. It gets in your mouth. It gets inside your watch and stops it. It gets inside your refrigerator, if you have one. The year's food, of course, must all be grown in four months. People grow sorghum or milo in fields not larger than the sanctuary. Their only tools are the strength of their backs and a short-handled hoe. The average annual income is between $85 and $100 per person. October and November, these are beautiful months. The granaries are full. The harvest has come. People sing and dance. They eat two meals a day, one about 10 in the morning after they've been to the field a while and the other just after sundown. The sorghum is ground between two stones to make flour and then a mush with the consistency of yesterday's cream of wheat. The sticky mush is eaten hot. They roll it into little balls between their fingers, drop it into a bit of sauce, and then pop it into their mouths. The meal lies heavy on their stomachs so they can sleep. December comes, and the granaries start to recede. Many families omit the morning meal. Certainly by January, not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. 
By February, the evening meal diminishes. People feel the clutch of hunger once again. The meal shrinks even more during March, and children succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on half a meal a day. April is the month that haunts my memory. The African dusk is quiet, you see. No jet engines, no traffic noises to break the stillness. The dust filters down through the air, and sounds carry for long distances. April is the month you hear the babies crying in the twilight. From the village over here, from the village over there, their mother's milk is now stopped. Parents go at this time of year to the bush country where they scrape bark from certain trees. They dig up roots as well, collect leaves, and grind it all together to make a thin gruel. They may pawn a chair, a cooking pot, or bicycle tires in order to buy a little more grain from those wealthy enough to have some remaining, but most often the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Then inevitably it happens. A six- or seven-year-old boy comes running to his father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy! Daddy! We've got grain! He shouts. Son, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Uh, out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging up on the wall. I reached up and put my hand in there. Daddy, there's grain in there. Give it to Mommy so she can make flour. And tonight our Tommies can sleep. The father stands motionless. Son, we, we can't do that, he softly explains. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains, and then we must use it. The rains finally arrive in May, and when they do, the young boy watches as his father takes the sack from the wall and does the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes to the field, and I've seen it. With tears streaming down his face, he takes the precious seed and throws it away. He scattered it in the dirt. Why? Because he believes in the harvest. The seed is his. He owns it. He can do anything with it he wants. The act of sowing it hurts so much that he cries. But as the African pastors say when they preach on Psalm 126, brothers and sisters, this is God's law of the harvest. Don't expect to rejoice later on until you have been willing to sow in tears. It's biblical. We know it, right? We, we know throughout the scriptures. And I believe in the concept of sowing for the future, even in the unknown present, because I see it all throughout the Bible. But God has also given me um, continual examples of these truths personally, over and over, because I don't know about y'all. Y'all look real holy and spiritual. I'm not. So God has to keep giving me examples of his faithfulness. And I remember um, we're a church plant in Baltimore. It's, it's, it's real funky to me, but we have people from all around the country come do missions trips to Baltimore because I guess they show videos and stuff, and they, they uh, get people from, like, the south especially to come and do mission trips. And we have people coming to do VBS. And it's been great as we do vacation Bible school in our neighborhood in the city. And one thing that I do to try to encourage as much as I can our volunteers, even in our church but outside of our church when it comes to things like VBS, Let's be honest, there's a few people, and maybe there's a few of here, right? Even as I said VBS, you're like, yes, when's our VBS? And you're really excited. Uh, most people are like, oh, VBS. You mean like the black hole of ministry, right? <laughs> the thing that takes all of our energy and resources and time for one whole week. And we ask, what did that actually do other than giving kids really creative snacks? And I, I don't know. I mean, people can have different ideas of things like VBS and children's ministry, but I, all I remember is when I was um, in Pennsylvania, and I must have been fourth grade at the time, 
I remember, you know, I was part of a Korean church at the time, small Korean church. We didn't have many resources. So what you do is when you don't have a lot of resources, you look for other churches that do, and you send your kids to those things, right? So we found a church in our neighborhood that was doing a vacation Bible school. I had never been to one of these Johns, right? A vacation Bible school, VBS. And I don't remember much about that. All I remember is going to this really weird place every day and doing these little skits and dances. And I'm like, okay, this is just strange. Eating these different foods. I like that part. Uh, learning stuff. Um, and I don't remember a single name of any of my teachers. I don't remember what any of them looked like. All I remember was a bunch of old white ladies. That's really all I can remember. But you know what I can remember about almost 30, 40 years later right now? Is making little torch lights because the theme of it was Gideon. And I can still remember as if it was yesterday, making those little crafts and learning the story about this biblical character named Gideon who trusted God, who did amazing things, not because he was great, because God's great. And I just think that's amazing because there was a whole season in my life where I was far away from God, running as far away as I can. But I look back to little, little evidences of people's faithfulness. I had no idea what was driving those little old white ladies back in the day. But I wish I could go to every single one of them and give them a huge hug and say, you don't know what your sacrifice led to. You don't know what you did in this little Korean kid and now has the privilege to lead ministry in Baltimore. And people are experiencing a redemption in Christ. You had no idea that those seed you're pouring into this little ministry, and maybe you thought it was just nice little aftercare, daycare. You had no idea the way that the kingdom was shaking. Little evidences just like that. And I'm, my hope is that one day they will know. One day in glory they will know. They will know. And that's why children's people, children's servants, if any of you serve with children's ministry, I know it's get like no glory in the church, but it is one of the most important things, not just for today. And God willing, great things happen today and next week and next year. But it's for like 10, 15, 20 years down the line that you might not even ever be aware of. But it's the principle of the harvest. It's the principle of sowing. That even though you don't know what God, was, what God is doing with it, you believe in God and the way he works. And you know he's faithful. He doesn't waste those things. I've also seen how God's used this principle of sowing to bear harvest even in our church at the village back in Baltimore. I mean, God, God's just been so faithful in different ways. But it's been a hard journey. And we're, we're coming up on 10 years now. But I mean, like, amazing stuff. Just objectively, God's allowing us now to be involved in some amazing stuff. Uh, recently, we had a young woman come into our church. And... Uh, she she wanted to get baptized, so we, we were talking through it, and she shared her story. And she's from um, a Middle Eastern family. She's from a Middle Eastern family, and she shared some of her journey. And, and right before she was going to get baptized, and just this family was devoutly Muslim. And she was in the U.S. To, for a temporary work uh, opportunity, and she experienced Christ, and, and Christ saved her. And she was sharing before our church saying, if my family knew what I'm about to do today and claim Christ as my Savior, I am dead. And she, no hyperbole involved, no dramatic, like, she was just saying it like it was fact. If her family found out what she was doing, proclaimed that she followed Jesus, she is dead. And she said, today's my birthday. And just, like, stories like that, being, being a, a multicultural church, just the opportunities to see the gospel impact different things. And I'll be real. 
Those are the things that now people know about us. Things, if, if anyone hears about a church, it's stories like that. No one knows, and maybe I'm just getting old and nostalgic. No one knows the stories of like 10 years ago when there was like nothing. And we had a small little team. And, and like stories stand out to me. One of our families is still with us today. Like we were, when you're a new church plant, you're just like, you think you're so cool, but you're so corny. Like we're doing these little like movie nights. And we in a tiny little movie that we were going to show and give out popcorn and do a little raffle because we're hip and cool like that, right? Uh, and, just, and, and I remember this one family at the time. They had like a, a one-year-old or two-year-old, two and they had a newborn. I remember them going around the whole neighborhood, mom and dad and these little kids in tow, putting up flyers in every business in our neighborhood. Crazy, like kids literally under their arms going out in the summer hot, a hot summer day, putting these flyers up everywhere they could. And, and there's a part of me that hopes that when we, we see great things God's doing now, you always recognize it was people sacrificed years before probably. And sometimes things happen overnight, praise God for that. But often the way that the harvest works is that God is using seed that's been sown for years and years and years in faithfulness. That for amazing things, like the stories that described to happen, it required probably some under the radar, faithful. Because that family, they had no idea what it was leading to. I think they thought we were a little crazy. But they believed what was God is doing, and it was worth them sacrificing and sowing their seed. Guys, sojourn. Psalm 126 reminds us that we can never determine how and if God is at work merely based on what our senses tell us at the present moment. We are such a sensory people, aren't we? But Psalm 26, and I would say the whole scriptures, it reminds us we can never use just our present circumstances, whether they're good or bad, be the main determiner of who God is in our lives, of his faithfulness, of his provision particularly if you are in a season of sorrow. Particularly if you are in a season of sorrow, you cannot use that. I mean, I'm not saying ignore it. Press into it. And I think God will reveal himself in the midst of it. But don't let that ultimately determine who God is in your life. Because sometimes what faith looks like is throwing away all your seeds in vain. And this is all the more why we need the truth of Psalm 26 in our minds. So I want to bring it a little real here. Uh, not that I would bring fake, but sometimes you have to qualify that, right? I want to bring it a little real. Uh, I do a lot of training with um, a lot of people interested in planting churches in Baltimore and train them, uh, equip them. One thing I tell almost every church planter coming to Baltimore or from Baltimore, if they're from Baltimore, they already know this, but if they're coming in from the outside, I tell them, hey, guys, uh, be faithful. Sow as much seed as you can. Love your community. Do everything that all the church planting organizations tell you to do to be a successful church plant. But you got to realize in our city, um, some of the things that you're hoping to see happen, some of the things you're praying about, it's probably not going to happen until after you're dead. You are serving faithfully for a harvest that might come generationally because there's systemic issues of racism and brokenness, that it might not happen for like generations, but what you are doing now is you are committing to throw seed. You're committing to pray seed. You're committing to love people and throw 
and, and just encourage and, and, and work for change and pray for change, but you're doing it with the idea and understanding you might not see the full fruit of that while you're still alive on this earth. Because, guys, we're not in some Disney movie. <laughs> Man, isn't it jacked up how sometimes a Christian journey can become like this Disney Disneyfied kind of thing, and you know, some professional come up and tell you, Hey guys, I know it's really hard right now, and you've experienced loss, and oh man, everything's turned upside down, but keep praying and keep sowing faithfully, and by the end, you'll see it all turn back around, and you'll be able to have that nice, cool video montage at the end showing how God, even when everything was absent, now He's present, and now we can have the credits roll. Um. I think the reality is sometimes, and we pray for fruit right now, and obviously a church like Sojourn, you've seen fruit already, but I think a biblical understanding of sowing is also to recognize some of the fruit that we're sowing seed for, we might not see it on this side of glory. I tell our church this every once in a while because it's really easy for us to get impressed with what we do now, and we see some stories, and that's all great, that's cool. But what I tell our church is that, you know, guys, you know what true success as a church plan, as a new church is going to look like? Is how are the playgrounds looking in 15, 20 years? How are the kids who are here and not in our church right now, how are their lives looking in 15, 20, 25 years? Because that's, I would say, true gospel legacy. Not just being able to throw today a, together a cool service and do these things, which are all good. I'm a big proponent, a big fan of that. But what does it look like to also, also believe in something way bigger? Maybe it's way bigger, and I believe God can do anything, but maybe it's some stuff that's not going to happen while we still have the vigor of our bones. It's going to happen after our sweet spots. But that doesn't mean just because we can't see it that something powerful is not going on. Because that's the way of Christ, right? We know that that's the way of Jesus. Because Jesus, um, he did some amazing things. But by the end there, he died. It wasn't looking that amazing. You know, he spent time with his followers, and it said a whole bunch of people used to follow him. By the end, it was a smaller group. And it ended with him being hung up on this thing called a cross, on this tree, on this piece of wood. To be called a criminal, to be called a heretic, to spiritually take on the sins of the world. To be, I mean, he looked like a loser. If you would have stopped on that Friday, it looked like it was a big waste of time. It looked like a big waste of seed. It looked like a lot of great ministry to happen, but oh, hey, oh, that wasn't a good ending. His followers all running away, lying about whether they even knew him. It looked like a big waste. But the thing is, and we're on the other side, so we know, right? Jesus knew the truth. He knew that he was investing in something, but that wasn't the end game. He knew that he was sacrificing something, but he knew it was leading to something much greater. It's like what we see in John 12, 24, when he writes, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus knew the principle of sowing for the harvest, that even if it doesn't look like at the present moment, there is no wasted sacrifice. There is no wasted seed. There is no wasted obedience. There is no wasted giving. There is no wasted tear. There is no wasted prayer in the economy of God. 
that God is using it all, even if you and I in our finite minds might not be aware of it at the moment. So let me just ask you here. How is God encouraging you today to keep sowing seed into the harvest? Some of you are down. Some of you are discouraged. I mean, sadly, some of it might even be attached to the church, right? You're like, man, I have such high hopes and God's doing great things, but I I thought it would look like this. Or I thought this person would change. Some of you are going through deep seasons of grief and mourning and loss. Some of you are intense seasons of mental illness and depression. Some of, you, some of your bodies are breaking. Some of your relationships are breaking. Some of you are experiencing professional collapse. And some of us are just experiencing a crisis of faith. Where on the outside, you look like you got it all put together. You know all the songs. But inside, you're asking, I don't, much, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Can I welcome you to faith? Can I welcome you to the Christ who showed us his way? That sometimes you sacrifice and you don't see what God is doing with it, but it's not for naught. It's not in vain. God is using it. And can I invite you? Don't give up. Don't give up. How is God encouraging you? And ultimately, I'm going to invite our worship leader to come up as we go into this time of communion. Ultimately, the reason why I have to keep coming to Christ in my own life, it's really easy for me to lose faith. The way I describe to my church, I feel like I leak all week. I know these things for truth. But one of the blessings of the table, one of the blessings of the Lord's Supper, communion, is that we come to this regularly as church weekly you come and you remember and you remember the Christ you remember this Jesus who sat with his closest followers and shared the most intimate thing you can share with meal and he took a piece of bread and he broke it and told them that this is his body broken for you and he took a cup and he said this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins drink of it And he said, as you do those things, as you eat the bread, as you drink the wine, remember, remember me. And the amazing thing is, Jesus did this with a bunch of fools that he knew were going to run away the very next day. Just a few hours, they were going to say, I don't even know the guy. Yeah, I know we spent three years together and we were like bros, but yeah, I don't even know the guy. I got to hide. Because for Jesus, it might have looked like it was a waste, but Jesus knew it's never a waste. And when I want to welcome you to the table, and there's tables in the back, there's tables in the front. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, come, have your faith renewed. Have you gotten tired of sowing seed? Are you tired of faith? Are you tired of obedience? Have you been asking, what's it leading to? Remember the way of the Christ that things are not always what they seem to appear to our eyes. And God is at work, even if you're not fully aware of it. And let this tangible expression of faith and obedience be a reminder to you to bow before Christ. Let him remind you, I'm for you. Because the thing, even for some of us, you might look at your life and maybe you struggle with a lot of guilt. Maybe you struggle a lot of shame about your spiritual walk. And you feel like you've 
let God down. And you know all the gospel truth. I can make, never make God love me more. or make, You know all that, but in your heart of hearts, you feel like I'm not living the life I'm supposed to live. You know what God never does and says, wow, that sure was a waste of salvation there. <laughs> wow, man, she is such an utter waste of sanctification. Oh, man, Holy Spirit, go work on him because he's never going to work out. God is faithful himself. He continues to pour out himself in his spirit. He invites you, take the Lord's Supper. Remind yourself of the God who is faithful even when you're not because he believes in the harvest. Amen? Amen? If you're brokenhearted, if you're dry, maybe I can invite you to don't come up right away and receive the communion, but sit and pray. Maybe if you have the courage to reach out to someone next to you, say, hey, can you pray for me for a moment? I'm really hurting here. I'm really wounded. It's hard for me even me to believe right now. And I also want to give the invitation. Maybe for some of you, you would say, I don't know if I know Jesus in this way. Uh, I, if, if religion to you is trying to be the good person, man, I feel really bad because you're in the wrong place today. Ultimately, what we're doing here is saying, man, isn't it great that Jesus died on behalf because I'm a messed up, screw up person. I could never do this. I'm always doubting. Praise God that he doesn't doubt. And I would, invite, I would welcome you. Trust Jesus today, and maybe you can come receive the Lord's Supper. Take a piece of the bread. T- uh, t- bring this back to your chairs. Take a piece of bread. Drink the cup and be reminded and be welcomed in to this journey of knowing Jesus today. So let me pray for us, and then I'm going to invite you to pray. Come to one of the communion stations as we respond in song in the Lord's Supper in prayer. Lord, help us this day. Lord, I don't know what everyone in this room is going through, but most likely it's the human condition of just being challenged in this journey. So I pray, Lord, whether we have genuine reason to exalt and to praise you, things are going really good right now. May we give you humbly all the worship and glory. But, Lord, if we've got very little reason in this life to praise you today, would you still invite us to grace, invite us to the table, invite us to knowing the Savior who lived out this principle of the harvest, of sowing, even in tears. And Lord, remind us you're a compassionate God. Remind us you love us deeply. And remind us again, there is no wasted sacrifice, no wasted tears, no wasted obedience, no wasted faithfulness. But Lord, you're using it all. And would you even give, a, give us a glimpse of glory to be able to see that? So help us, Lord, this day to worship you. So can I ask you to stand with me? And again, respond in song, respond in prayer. And if you are being led, you can go to one of these stations in the four corners of the room and receive the Lord's Supper. Bring it back to your chair, and you can take it there. And remember the faithfulness of Christ.